So should the cross be the revelation of the Trinity? The title of this lecture justifies to my mind major reworkings of Trinitarian theology from the contemporary period. More precisely, such a question could conduct a debate from a distance between Ansel von Balthasar and Thomas Aquinas. Over and above the centuries, it will be possible to bring them face to face concerning their different ways of conceiving, for example, procession and mission, the fruitfulness of the Father, the role of the Spirit, and so on. I prefer, however, to note a more radical divergence on the epistemological plane with respect to the foundation of a Trinitarian analogy and then to illuminate the Trinitarian function of the mysteries of Jesus, which preoccupied each theologian in his own time. I will start with the moments of Trinitarian witness according to Augustine, and you will understand why. To clarify the unity and aim of my overall proposal centered on the mode of Trinitarian revelation and manifestation, let us begin by gathering the logic of the rule of Trinitarian faith handed on by Augustine. At the beginning of his treatise De Trinitate, Augustine declares his intention to defend the substantial or essential unity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In the first books, he tries to respond to the Aryan objections in opposition to the unity and equality of the three persons. To begin with, he recalls and reformulates the rule of Trinitarian faith, such as he has received it through the fathers and his other predecessors. It possesses an elaborate and instructive theological structure that I render as follows. One, the unity of God, one single substance, indivisible, whence one single God. Two, the distinction of the three persons through the incommunicable properties of each. The Father alone begets, the Son alone is begotten, the Spirit alone belongs to both the Father and the Son. Three, the differentiated action or manifestation proper to each in the New Testament. The birth of the Son is crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The manifestation of the Spirit at the baptism and at Pentecost. The manifestation of the Father at the baptism, the transfiguration, and the announcement of glory in John. The inseparability of the three in their differentiated but conjoined action manifestation, that's the fourth step of the rule of faith. According to the structure of the rule of faith handed down by Augustine, the distinction of the three persons does not depend on their differentiated manifestation, but rather on the eternal acts and properties. Nevertheless, their eternal distinction is attested by certain events in the history of salvation. Augustine assembles the following events under this or that facet birth, baptism, transfiguration, announcement of glory, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. In virtue of the inseparability of the three persons, each of these scenes could no doubt be studied as an integral Trinitarian unveiling. But Augustine suggests here 
that what is proper to each is attested in a determinate, concrete way in this or that event. This or that revelatory facet of the mysteries of Christ in reality pertains to the singular mode of presence or action of one of the three. There is no moment for excellence for this Trinitarian manifestation, even less an exclusive moment. None of these events mentioned appear to loom brightly over the others. For Augustine, the sequence of public Trinitarian attestation extends from birth to Pentecost. It is thus practically, it thus practically embraces the whole of the trajectory of Christ Jesus, such as it is recounted in the four Gospels and then in the Acts of the Apostles. Through the rest of Book 1 to 4 of the treatise De Trinitate, Augustine shows that the Theophanies of the Old Testament do not afford sure access to the distinction of the three persons. It is only through the Incarnation and Pentecost that the Son and the Spirit are identifiable as sent by the Father. The economy of Trinitarian revelation stretches between the two beacons of the Incarnation of the Son and the Pentecost of the Spirit. The rule of faith is a common foundation that makes it possible to frame our background question. How is God the Trinity engaged in the mysteries of Jesus? The mysteries here are understood in the broad sense of salvific events related to the incarnation, life, and Passover of Christ Jesus. I skip the next paragraph. Two, the cross, the proper place of Trinitarian revelation in von Balthasar. In Theodrama for the Action, published in 1980, Balthasar states that the doctrine of the Trinity can only be developed by beginning with the cross. The cross will then be understood to include the resurrection, though it will designate, above all, the abandonment lived in fidelity to Calvary. In Mysterium Pascale in 1969, Balthasar stated more clearly that the revelation of the Spirit ultimately shines forth in the resurrection. This led him to conclude that while being prepared by the opposition of wills during the agony and the abandonment by the Father on the cross, the revelation of the Trinity is properly accomplished by the resurrection. Comparatively, in the Theodrama, the Trinitarian exposition seems almost exclusively centered around the moment of the Calvary. Indeed, Balthazar judges that there, for the first time, the distance between the Father and the Son is made manifest in the dereliction of Jesus. The terms chosen are decisive. The theologian seeks to the first explicit Trinitarian epiphany, and he traces it to when Father and Son are presented under the mode of distance. Two questions arise. Why such a focus on the cross? Why such an attraction to distance? From the impasse, impasse of the image to the law of gift. Balthazar is basically disappointed by the scholastic and modern avatars of the Augustinian analogy, like mind, knowledge, love, memory, intellect, will, and so on. This image, according to him, has led to the formalism of a trinity conceived according to the cleavage of the human mind. 
the begetting of the Son by way of intellectual operation and the procession of the Spirit by way of voluntary impulse. Thomas Aquinas and his epigons were thus caught in the snares of the man's, the mind. The moderns have only accentuated the projection of solipsism onto God. They have resolved the Trinity by the yardstick of the absolute subject, subject who takes possession of himself according to a simple divine self-mediation. This amounts to plunging deeper into the same rock that which ensnared scholastic thinkers. At the beginning of his article entitled The Holy Spirit as Love, Balthazar emphasizes the sinness or weakness of the scriptural foundation of the Augustinian analogy, according to which the Son is begotten by way of knowledge, while the Spirit proceeds by way of love. In Joanna literature, love is the love of the Father for the world and for the Son, manifested to the world by the sending and the offering of the Son, while the Spirit has rather a function of teaching and discernment. In Pauline literature, the appropriation of love to the Spirit is not applied in a clear and unequivocal way. The Spirit is often associated with the power of God. He also makes it possible to confess and recognize the world. The Augustinian analogy thus seems to be like a gratuitous theological fabrication. There is nothing normative about it. However, it is substituted for New Testament revelation by governing the Western representation of the Trinity. For Balthazar, the Trinitarian unfolding is explained entirely by the ecstatic and fecund love of the Father. This seems more in conformity with the New Testament, where love runs through the whole Trinitarian economy without, however, being appropriated to the Spirit. To reconnect with the New Testament economy of Trinitarian revelation, is to recognize that the Father's love is at the beginning of all Trinitarian fructification. Love is the heart of the Trinity, and like absolute love, it is the eternal gift of self. The Father is identical to this gift. He does not lose himself. He does not reserve himself. His gift has dispossession of self to extreme abandonment. In a word, Paternal love is eternal primordial kenosis. The only support mentioned by Balthazar for treating the father's self-exteriorization as kenosis is a peerless Sergei Bulgakov. Surprisingly, Balthazar does not seek to found such an intuition on the New Testament. It must be recognized that the assertion of a primordial kenosis of the father ultimately comes from the way in which a theologian conceives the intrinsic logic of extreme love in the act of giving, in three steps, excess or plenitude, abandonment or kenosis, and envelopment. It belongs in some way to the internal law of love given to pass through self-abandonment. Applicable to us, it will also be applicable in the highest degree to the God Trinity, starting with the Father. Second, the salvific function of an infinite distance eternally overcome. Thus, the begetting of the Son by the Father implies a paternal abandonment. For Balthazar, it is the establishment of an infinite distance in the sense 
that the Son is infinitely other than the Father. Why speak here of otherness in terms of distance? This is fully illuminated by the salvific function attributed to the eternal distance between the Father and the Son. If the distance between the Father and the Son is the greatest of all, it eternally includes every possible separation of God from free creatures. The infinite distance between the Father and the Son is eternally maintained in openness and communion through the Spirit. It is, so to speak, eternally overcome in God himself. This is precisely what is made manifest on Calvary. The Son abandoned by the Father on account of being identified with sin as separation from God is nevertheless maintained in fidelity and communion with the Father through the Spirit. The event of the cross is thus the temporal epiphany of the eternal Trinitarian event. I skip a few lines. The cross reveals, therefore, that the Trinity envelops the world. The whole drama of created freedom in conflict with God is eternally included and embraced in the internal drama of the Trinitarian life, where the infinite distance is always already overcome in love. In other words, the reconciliation of all possible separations from God, sinners though they be, is already acquired in its eternal foundation. Such a Trinitarian conception of reconciliation is, to my understanding, the main justification for the daring language of absolute and infinite distance between the Father and the Son. It is at the cross that such a distance is found to be revealed on the world stage. Undoubtedly, Balthazar takes some metallurgical precautions. He does not mean to confuse God with mutable, intramundane events, nor to project an eternal suffering unto God. On several occasions, he asserts that it is necessary first to exclude all suffering from God and then lay the foundation in him, the condition of possibility for the drama of the world. A moment of negative theology must thus precede the affirmation of an eternal foundation. The whole history of freedom and covenant is made possible by the primordial otherness distance of the Father and the Son. The foundation of the otherness distance of creatures consumed on the cross. To the question asked, why is the cross, why should the cross be the proper place of the Trinitarian unveiling in Ansos and Balthazar, I would ultimately answer, so that every separation from God through created freedom might be reconcilable to in God the Trinity, where infinite distance is eternally reconciled. Now, after this benevolent presentation, I will come to an assessment. Three, competing analogies and scriptural foundations. Balthazar's option for the cross as a quintessential place for Trinitarian epiphany can be questioned on several points. The relationship between concepts and metaphors, the supposition of an archetypal eternal drama of the cross, the theological status of an immanent law of love, the scriptural foundation of an eternal kenosis proper to each divine person. Such points of discussion have in common 
that they ultimately involve theological, theological epistemological presuppositions. In other words, they come under the subject of knowing how this or that theology can account for its way of progressing in knowledge and making intellectual decisions. I will treat the last two points together. Balthazar has distanced himself from the Augustinian analogy that is legitimate and well-founded. He is right to underscore the difficulty of rigorously incurring such an analogy in the New Testament. Given the almost autonomous development of the Augustinian analogon in medieval scholasticism, there was cause for concern. To safeguard the right function of the triads, mind, knowledge, love, or memory, intellect, will, in the Western tradition, it is, it is, however, useful to issue two reminders which do not erase the real problem. In Augustine, triads are first and foremost mere likenesses, illustrating how three figures, whatever figures, can at the same time be consubstantial and relative, distant and inseparable. The use of these illustrations is not, first of all, oriented towards the identification of each term with one of the three persons. In Thomas Aquinas, the reprise of the Augustinian likeness has a precise and limited function. Beginning with a natural sequence between knowledge and love, to conceive a real order and a relation of origin between the spirit and the son, so as to envision theologically their real distinction. In other words, neither in Augustine nor in Thomas is the Augustinian analogy supposed to acquire a descriptive function as the immanent life of the Trinity. This, however, leaves the whole objection concerning the lack of scriptural foundation for the analogy. It is true that to envision the whole Trinitarian unfolding, both economic and immanent, in terms of love, seems more in conformity with the New Testament, at the very least with the Johannine literature. Balthazar is probably right to want to reimagine the Trinity as love. One must be aware, however, that he himself creates a Balthazarian analogon competing with the Augustinian analogon and exposes the same risk. We could call it the law of extreme love that gives itself, excess, kenosis, and development. It is says that Balthazar gives an account of the Father's love before showing that the Son and the Spirit live in turn in an original way their own abandonment or kenosis. It starts with the Father, which is very daring. In this way, the Trinitarian person is fundamentally conceived as a being in kenotic relation. Yes, it is quite possible that extreme human love almost always involves this kind of relation. However, is it a fitting analogy for approaching the love inside the life of the Trinity? Thus, we find still ourselves with the question of scriptural foundation. The Johannine literature clearly expresses that the love of the Father is manifested by the Son and that it is extended in the fraternal love of the disciples inhabited by the Spirit of Truth. 
the conceptual transition from such an economy of manifested love to an understanding of the immanent life of the Trinity in terms of love, and what is more, as kenotic love, is not immediately obvious. That amounts to a free creation comparable to that of the Augustinian analogon. I skip the following paragraph. Already in uh, the glory of the Lord, the new covenant, Balthazar uh, worked on kenosis, and he already hinted at the fact that the cross is silhouetted in the kenosis of creation itself. However, Balthazar immediately challenges the idea that the kenosis of God would merely be the amplification of some intra-mundane love. It is indeed necessary to safeguard the non-necessity of the kenosis of God in the economy of salvation. It is only because God has actually lowered himself that we can recognize that such an economy in fact corresponds to his own essence, that is, to the immanent life of the Trinity where the persons are in kenotic relationships. God can seek out and save the created freedom that wrecks itself into nothingness because he is already in the person of the Son the emptiness of love's absolute obedience for the unconditional command. The humanity of Jesus, however, is not from its origin identified with the suffering of the cross. It is led there through a true human life of full availability, although its entire existence be determined by the kenosis of God. Thus, the sole scriptural foundation for the kenosis of God is found at the outcome of the theological reasoning, once the being in relation of the divine persons have been qualified as kenotic by recourse to other references. First of all, Bulgakov. This poses two serious questions. Is the Balthasarian analogon of extreme love as a kenotic relationship theoretically valuable by itself in an autonomous fashion? Does the kenosis of Philippians 2.7 found not only a kenosis of the Son in view of the cross, but also a kenosis of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the immanent life of the Trinity. Four, the background decision between two types of Christology. I'm going to be very sketchy here and exposed to much critics. There are two basic options in Christology. I call them the Chalcedonian paradigm and the ascending path. The Chalcedonian paradigm holds the unity of subject, Christ, and the duality of natures in the form of a paradox. And the key here is paradox. The human nature and the divine nature of Christ are not in a direct relationship of transparency or correspondence. They are incommensurable and are united by the, only, by the one subject of subsistence and operation who is the Son of God in person. The divine nature is a proper nature of the Son, while the human nature is really appropriated to him as being assumed. 
In such a perspective, the conditions and properties of Christ in his humanity maintain a paradoxical relationship to the properties of his divinity. Impassible is nevertheless passable. Eternal is nevertheless mortal. Omnipotent is nevertheless reduced to powerlessness, and so on. Impassibility is not revealed impassibility. There are two distinct sources of knowledge that are combined by way of paradox in this kind of Christology. On one hand, a biblical metaphysical doctrine of the names and attributes of God, and on the other hand, the teaching of the whole economy of the Son in the flesh. Such a paradigm was overthrown by Martin Luther based on his reflection on the Eucharist. The divinity of the Son is not recognized or predefined from any other source than his flesh. Only the abased humanity of the Son gives access to the proper content of his divinity. This is not in conformity with a divine essence knowable in advance. Through the economy of the Son in the flesh, what is proper to his divinity is unveiled or reflected in some kind of transparency. The divinity of the Son is abasement, obedience, consent. In this way, the humanity and divinity of Christ no longer maintain an indirect and paradoxical relationship. They are in a relation of correspondence and fittingness. Initiated by Luther, and I value very much this insight, I've tried myself to develop it in a recent book, which is not mentioned here. Such a Christology of correspondence was brilliantly implemented by Karl Barth in section 59 of his Church Dogmatics, and otherwise by Wolfgang Pannenberg. As we have seen, Balthazar does not really seek to found his conception of the kenotic being of each of the divine persons, beginning with the Father, on the kenosis of the Son of God, attested by Philippians 2.7. On the other hand, his disciples, with good reason, strive to do so. To rise from the kenotic state of Christ in the flesh to the kenotic being of God, is then an implementation of the ascending path, such as I have qualified it. The kenotic obedience of Christ is a direct revelation of his kenotic being as son in the bosom of the immanent trinity. Such an assertion is possible, but going any further is not justified. Even in the logic of the ascending path, which I value, the kenosis of Philippians 2.7 does not allow us to affirm that the Father himself is the abandonment of self in his singular manner of being a person. It is divinity such as it is possessed and so-called exercised by the Son that is revealed in the abased humanity of Jesus and not the divinity or the being a person of just any of the three divine persons. In my view, the urkenosis of the Father remains completely unfounded on the scriptural level. Having confronted the Augustinian analogon and the Balthasarian one, some pre-conclusion can be formulated. On a scriptural level, the Balthasarian analogon is no better founded than the Augustinian analogon. 
These are in reality two competing speculative developments. Their validity is rather to be sought in their reception and fruitfulness. The fruitfulness of the Augustinian analogon is widely demonstrated, notably by its capacity to found a real participation of human beings in a Tritian life. And the reception of the Balthasarian analogon is still in progress and bear fruit, as the debate attests. Up to this point, I have argued, especially with answers on Balthazar, can we, during support from Thomas Aquinas, provide a different treatment of the initial question concerning proper places of Trinitarian attestation, also posing to ourselves the question of the nature of such an attestation? Is it a manifestation or an inference? If it is a manifestation, is it for both the senses and the mind? under what objective and subjective conditions. So five, the Trinitarian function are the mysteries of Jesus, revelation or manifestation. We are asking what are the proper places of Trinitarian attestation in the mysteries of Jesus. The vocabulary of attestation here remains relatively undeterminate, while suggesting a primarily preliminary knowledge of the Trinity. And here, I go back to Augustine. He includes in the economy of the Trinitarian revelation all the manifestations proper to one of the three situated between the birth and Pentecost. For his part, also St. Balthazar places in five emphasis on the cross, then resurrection, as a Trinitarian revelation of the distance between the Father and the Son, carried in the spirit of communion. Additional light can be drawn from the treatise on the life of Jesus by Thomas Aquinas. When he treats of this or that mystery, Aquinas willingly points out the personal implication of the Spirit, the Son, as the Father. In the mysteries of the childhood, the Spirit is often invoked as an actor. It is with respect to the birth and the baptism that Thomas Aquinas tackles in the most direct way an economy of manifestation. It is striking that it then speaks of manifestation and not of revelation, even though uh, the scope of revelation is very broad in Aquinas. Concerning the manifestation of Christ by his birth, Aquinas distinguishes three kinds of manifestations which he considers, sorry, when he considers the role of the angels and the star. As a general rule, the manifestation occurs through the mediations closest to the addresses. For the righteous, the truth is taught from within through the inspiration of the spirit of prophecy, without manifestation by sensible signs, as was the case with Anna and Simon. For the pagans, sensible signs are by contrast required and adapted to their own conditions, like the star intended for the Magi, whom Aquinas thinks were astronomers. For the Jews, finally, the angels are regular messengers to whom they were accustomed. 
including for the eminent gift of the law. In the strict sense, revelation refers to the interior teaching of salvific truths to be believed, brought about by the instinctus of the Holy Spirit. Manifestation requires observers to rise from signs to the truth, while revelation offers the divine truth to the adherence of living faith through the entire action of the Spirit. In the natural order, a sign can maintain a proportion to the truth it manifests. In the supernatural order, such a proportion could not exist. The signs become effective only when they encounter in the witnesses an interior perception in faith of the truth manifested by the signs. In this way, the economy of manifestation by signs is relative to an economy of interior revelation by the Spirit. In, this, in the Trinitarian economy, this translates as follows. The mysteries of Jesus as privileged places for a Trinitarian manifestation in the proper sense, especially in the time of his childhood and baptism. But such a manifestation presupposes an adherence in faith to God the Trinity, made possible through an interior inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Now, such an interior event of inspiration and recognition is precisely what we call a Trinitarian revelation in the proper sense. From this perspective, it is not appropriate to remake through the mysteries of Jesus to look for the perfect moment where the Trinity will, reve will reveal itself for the first time in a clear and unmistakable manner. Rather, we must recognize that all the mysteries of Jesus are marked by a Trinitarian manifestation for the one who benefits from the Trinitarian revelation. Through Christian initiation and the tradition of the rule of faith, revelation is always prior to the economy of manifestation for us. It is because believers receive the internal inspiration of the Spirit, the Lumen Fidei, and the tradition of Trinitarian faith that the successive events of the life of Jesus become for them a Trinitarian manifestation adjusted by revela to revelation. In my view, the Trinitarian rule of faith handed down by Augustine illustrates such a link between Trinitarian revelation and Trinitarian manifestation. Six, an inversion of the relationship between light on one side and form or figure on the other side. Compared to the theology of faith and prophecy established by Thomas Aquinas, Ansos von Balthasar has consciously inverted the relationship between lumen and species for light and form. This is very clear and recurrent in the glory of the law seeing the form. In Aquinas, the lumen of faith or prophecy is a power of supernatural illumination without which no form or figure can become revelation, even the humanity of Christ. The proper angle of revelation always comes from a lumen 
bestowed by the Holy Spirit in the intimacy of the human intellect, thus elevated to faith. In Balthazar, the lumen is rendered relative to the objective evidence of the figure taking over from the speeches. In favor of his theological aesthetics, the theologian from Lucerne knows perfectly well that he is inverting the order of priority formerly established by Thomas Aquinas between lumen and speeches. And also some Balthazar has translated and commented the treatise of Aquinas on prophecy. There is an epistemological coherence proper to the theological project of Ansos and Balthazar, coherent, for instance, with love alone is credible. It underlies the project's progressive focusing of Trinitarian revelation on objective evidence of the Trinitarian drama of the cross. According to the theology of faith and prophecy of Thomas Aquinas, it would be futile to seek to identify the first moment of Trinitarian revelation. There is always an interiority of Trinitarian faith, a response to the interior revelation by the Spirit, to the Trinitarian epiphany really attested in the life and Passover of Jesus. For us, wayfaring pilgrim, it is not yet a question of seeing God the Trinity, but of believing in him, and consequently, of contemplating him in rich signs in the life and Passover of Jesus. From his birth to Pentecost, we recognize that Jesus is a center of a Trinitarian epiphany, precisely because his very identity is relational. He unceasingly, in his action, in his preaching, in the way he is designated, and he presents himself to human beings as the one sent by the Father and as the herald of the Spirit, whom he finally poured out. Thank you for your patience. Just a small remark with respect to the separation question. Uh, Antos Balthasar has this idea from a philosopher, Ferdinand Lurik, and that's important because Ferdinand Lurik describes love as the giving of a gift, and this implies for him two things the separation of the gift from the giver, the gift is really given. And the second thing, which is uh, not mentioned here, is the presence of the giver through the separation of the gift. So, the Trinitarian life of Balthasar is always the separation in the sense of giving the gift and the making present of the giver through the gift. So, that you have a mutual inheritance of Trinitarian persons, and this would uh, we like would um, connect to what you heard about the uh, conversation, the metaphor of conversation. And uh, therefore, I think if you criticize the, the notion of separation, you always have to uh, 
before the second point of, of presence. Okay. So Martin Biller is going to speak more tomorrow. And you answer some that are very well and knows his uh, thought much more than I do. I would just ask you one question, if I can reverse the room. Um, could you say exactly the same thing just by using the word distinction? Distinction of the giver and the gift, and presence of the giver to the one to whom it is given. Distinction of the Separation is more dramatic. <laughs> or maybe relative distinction, so that we have a... Yeah. Yeah. Separation is not meant to be in any sense of alienation. It does not include alienation. Uh, so, it is totally positive. It is meaning. In a, in a, in a but uh, I will elaborate the issue tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you, Father. You emphasized at the end that there's a difference for Thomas between our belief and contemplation of the Trinity in this life and our vision of the Trinity in the next. And I'm wondering if in Balthazar's thought, if there's really a difference between our vision of the Trinity in this life and our vision of the Trinity in the next, or if somehow our vision of the Trinity in the life to come is really just a continuation of if we're still just contemplating the humanity of Christ without ever reaching the essence and so forth, if that makes any sense. Well, I, I do not dare to respond to this question. I will leave it to Michel and Martin tomorrow because I'm not a Balthazarian scholar, I'm just trying to... Um, I think, I suspect Balthazar will not equate both, of course, and the figure for him, as far as I understood him, is the humanity of Christ. It's not Trinity, uh, just in transparency. Okay, I see I have a pause here, so I'm going to ask you a question. I, I found very, um, I mean, that, the entire presentation is very helpful, but I found the last part especially suggestive when you distinguish between, as I understood it, the manifestation of the Trinity through signs and the deeper apperception of the Trinity made possible through the revelation of faith and the Fide in us. And of course, the light of faith is the precondition to perceive the Trinity in the mysteries of life of Christ. The question that raised to me, my own, as I was listening to you, was um, what is the role played by the ontological primacy of the reality of the missions as the co-producing to, or the condition for the illumination of faith? I mean, Give an example. Uh, it's one thing to say that the revelation of Jesus, who appears to the apostle, the signs of his resurrection. You only understand the resurrection of Jesus, his physical resurrection, his bodily resurrection, if you're illuminated by the faith, the message of resurrection, the understanding. 
But on the other hand, you can only believe in the resurrection of the Son of God because it's actually happened. It's been communicated to you as through, through words or spirit things. So, I mean, that seems like something more than what you're talking about at the stage. It's like the ontological reality of the resurrection and communicated through revelation. I mean, what, what is the primacy of being using primacy knowledge if it's not manifestation and then subjective revelation? I would say we are in a different noetic position as those who met Christ and as the apostles. So for us, the, that would be my proposal. The invisible missions are prior to an acknowledgement of the manifestation, even though, of course, we needed the real external um, incarnation of the, of the sun as its visible mission, so that any kind of Christological faith and Trinitarian faith uh, emerge. But I will distinguish what we do as believers and theologians and the way we invest into the economy of manifestation as testified in the New Testament and the way it was for the very first generation. And in fact, it seems to me the logic of the Gospels go in this direction because they give you from the start, especially Mark, Matthew, and John, a very stark light on the identity of Jesus Christ before you enter into the path of the narrative to unveil progressively who he was. And so we are always preceded by the reception of this enlightenment of faith to contemplate his life. That would be my Thank you, Thanks so much, Matthew, for this really helpful paper. One uh, thing that occurred to me as you were talking, perhaps another aspect of the contrast between Augustine and Thomas on the one hand and Paul on the other, um, concerns uh, the insistence that love is, is self-giving, uh, that love is self-emptying. Um, and I wonder, from a mystic and Augustinian point of view, that's a constitutive right, that love is primordially something else, conceptually or physically, but also something else, um, which is the uh, embrace of the attraction to the creatures of good. Uh, and that becomes then self-emptying under the conditions of sin, where we can only love as a truthful by giving ourselves up, and of course, it's supremely true uh, in and of Jesus. Um, then we occurred in the world, and then listening to this, and it seems to me that that might be another an important fundamental point of Congress, so that in the way that in Thomas and Augustine are having difficulty saying the Father and the Son and the Lord and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a fundamental accident problem that we've been thinking about the Trinity. 
spoiler, spoiler of oneself in order to really maintain the Thank you so much for this uh, very shrewd comment. I, I think uh, there will be an, another set of difficulty to discuss on the meaning of personhood. And one of the points of debate is um, do we have a purely specific Christological definition of person, then we apply then to the father and the son, or do we agree to have a common ground with philosophers on what persons means? And in this case, I think there is an over-Christological determination of the concept of person by kenosis. Uh, yeah, so this would be another point of of debate. Um, yeah. It is that, is that correctly that you said what is that the light is up in the infinite otherness is also the source of evil. The source of evil. So is it a kind of um, answer to Shelley's attempt to, uh, to give an account of how, um, how evil is possible and overcome? Um, but this is just one question. Um, the, the idea, would we agree to say that the idea of an infinite otherness is actually what in German, in German would say ungetan. It's an unfold. It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a piece of rhetoric. Because, of course, the otherness in the relationship is, as the idealist would say, uh, already and always impossible, only possible in, in an identity. And the identity is the, uh, the relationship. So infinite otherness doesn't make any sense at all. So I will try to respond in two uh, aspects. First, I don't think Balthazar will say that um, the infinite awesomeness grants evil in a straight line, but it grants the possibility of created awesomeness, created freedom, and some of its consequences, as far as I understood. Um, it seems to me there is quite something interesting in the idea of otherness. If we reflect on the divine persons, they are more different in their proper, in what defines them as persons, than we are different among ourselves, even though they are only one God. Because if their personhood is pure relation, they are being one but in total personal distinction. So there is something interesting in investigating what otherness means in terms of relations in the Trichine uh, at least theology, if we don't confuse our theology with the mystery. Last question, perhaps. I found already a, a book 
distinction between uh, revelation and manifestation uh, very illuminating. That's uh, important clarification in the Now, I'm still wondering, I, I agree with explanations. Uh, I think there is no revelation without uh, the interior action of the Holy Spirit, which is the formal element of uh, revelation. Now, don't you believe that uh, exterior signs or exterior events also are also part of the revelation, not only manifestation, but revelation? Put otherwise, don't you think that Christ's events, I mean, taken as a whole, like uh, an individual event, that uh, when Christ lived uh, in the flesh, had attractive power, a power of attraction, that is already part of not only the manifestation, but the revelation. Uh, there are some hints in this direction in Michael's country on St. John, as you know, as I know you know, or I'm sure you know. <laughs> no, no. Uh, because here it's not a certainty uh, <coughs> knowledge. So, what about the attractive power of uh, the exterior events of Christ's life? Only a manifestation? Only? Of course, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I will, go just, I will just give an example in this direction. Like, um, on John 13, the washing of the feet, uh, it's obvious that the, because men, human beings, need uh, examples, and because they are more easily convinced and attracted to actions than to long conferences and teachings. <laughs> the, the, the action of Christ is part of the economy of his revelation. And as one of your doctoral students, um, Climax has wonderfully demonstrated, um, there's the external teaching of Christ, which is part of the complete economy of revelation. So I'm, I know I use these two words just to present an alternative balance, but I agree with your uh, elements. I have to say there's another doctoral student of Bernard Blackenhorn who is writing in a very complete manner on the concept of revelation. And he told me that revelation and manifestation, as far as Aquinas is concerned, overlap a lot. There's not a sharp distinction. So, I make up my own little thing with that. <laughs> We're going to submit you just one or two more. Thank you very much. Um, if you consider that the Gospels were written from the perspective of the Easter Revelation, yeah. why do they bother so much with manifestation? The point is, I think, that revelation necessarily includes manifestation. But you cannot declare the manifestation to be the full revelation, because then you would only have the point of the story over and over, over again without the story. Yeah. But the story is the important one, not least for seeing Christ as the example and so on. And 
have a similar relationship with regard to does love always have to have this um, form of abandon? The true elements that would be necessary conditions for speaking about love at all would be gift and promise. But to see them exercised as they are in the cross is that particular um, manifestation and revelation, which becomes through Easter revelation, which makes it clear to us that they have to be thought in this radical way. But it's clearly uh, a way in which something is radicalized, which we have in every kind of human interaction. And I think this is the element where we have to say the Easter revelation gives us the life of Christ to read. And the life of Christ gives us the incarnation to read. And through the incarnation, we understand what happens in the world. With this kind of logic, the acceptable kind of middle path between Aquinas and Yeah, I think so. It's very wise. But I, maybe the, the focus on my proposal is we should invest more energy in uh, doing Trinitarian theology with all the moments of Christ's life. You know, like. Please tell me your name, Father, for a